So thanks for the opportunity to share the gospel with you and and it will be based on a verse which is one of the core verses of our Joshua church. So when it was founded a bit more than 25 years ago, my parents-in-law, they had a kind of cell group, a house church in Schenefeld. They belonged to a um, larger Baptist church in, in Hamburg. And, um, and this cell group, this, this house church, that grew. And uh, they had a verse from uh, Jeremiah 29, verse 7, which is well known. And uh, it is increasingly important, and I will outline why for our current situation also all over Europe. So the verse, Jeremiah 29, verse 7 is, Seek the welfare of the city where I have sent you into exile. Seek the welfare of the city where I have sent you into exile. That is summarizing a situation which is not comfortable. It was not comfortable for the Israels, the former times, And it's very similar to what we experience increasingly in Germany and all over Europe. And that is a shift from being a majority community to a minority community. So transition from majority to minority, this process is painful and disorientating but also full of potential. And I increasingly like the exilic literature, like Jeremiah or some psalms or others, because it's a great scripture resource for an ex-majority minority. We see that in, uh, for example, Psalms 137, full of disorientation, full of grief, of anger, of resentment of lamenting the situation that they are no longer majority but minority and then we have this Jeremiah 29 with this order to seek the welfare of the city where I have sent you into exile so it was not by accident it was God's plan to send them there and he has a command to them in that situation The exile in Babylon was profoundly significant for the Jews and has taught them for hundreds of years how to survive as a minority. And out of that, there were, with the coming of Jesus, something much greater than just Israel's restoration. So around the globe, if we see the situation of Christians around the globe, a majority status is exceptional. There are hundreds of thousands and millions of Christians living as a minority in their society and community. And it's interesting to see the shift from a majority community to a minority community in Europe. We have regularly a census. And uh, in this census, you can click different boxes. And there is one box increasingly clicked, and that says 
no religious affiliation. This group is growing in Germany and Europe. No religious affiliation. Unfortunately, this group, compared with other data, this group is significantly younger and the most economically active group. So, there are, of course, religious people, but mainly older, and also among the people who clicked Christian, we have to differentiate, because there are hundreds of thousands just nominal Christians belonging to the Evangelical or Lutheran Church, but when we talk about Christians, we increasingly have additional terms like born-again Christians or committed Christians or dedicated Christians to make sure, okay, we are on the same page. There is a great opportunity, and that is another box you can click at the census, and that is called SBNR. That means spiritual, but not religious. And that is also increasingly clicked. People who claim themselves as being spiritual, but not religious. So there is a longing for something they can't define clearly. There is something they want to see in their lives. There is some sense for spirituality, but they are fed up with any religious style, with the churches, with what they were doing. They are fed up of institutions who claim to be the majority, but they aren't. So this is the opportunity for us as Christians to come back to the very foundational reason why we are Christians, and that is Christ himself, Jesus Christ and the relationship to him. So we are, of course, sometimes in our Christian realm talking about reaching unchurched people. That might be correct, but all over Europe we have a different setting, and so I more and more talk about, not about unchurched people, but de-churched people. People in Germany know churches. It's not that they have never heard about the gospel, about the Bible, about churchy messages. But they don't want that for their life. And so they are de-churched. It is easier to bring somebody to Christ who has never heard from the gospel than somebody who is disappointed by bad experiences. So today we frequently hear the notion that in Europe Christianity is out of touch with our times. That the Bible is old-fashioned, irrelevant or even oppressive. So let me quote from Stephen Gustafsson who de defined uh, Christianity as the following, he said, Christianity began as a personal relationship with Jesus Christ. When it went to Athens, it became a philosophy. When it went to Rome, it became an organization. When it went to Europe, it became a culture. And that's for you, when it came to America, it became 
a business. And that's, in many cases, the style of Christianity in Europe just to be a culture. So we do have a great heritage. The Bible, first of all, transforms individual human beings who in turn transform entire nations in every area of life. We see this remarkable record of personal and societal transformation, be it science or healthcare or literature or learning or liberty. The biblical worldview touched and transformed entire societies. All that basically came from Christians. The medieval monasteries were the seedbeds of European universities. Indeed, many of these monasteries and cathedral schools developed into these great universities we have until now. And almost all education back then was in fact church education. And again, it was not just Europe which has benefited from all of this. In South Korea, for example, the education of women was mocked and discouraged until Western Christian missionaries came there and brought about radical change. As a result, today, the largest women's university in the world is located in Seoul. So even the education of the blind and deaf was a Christian initiative. The ancient Greeks often used blind boys as galley slaves and blind girls as prostitutes. Jesus, however, restored their sight. Or Darwin's secular survival of the fittest philosophy would never pay for developing an education to humanize the handicapped. Every traditional culture left them to their fate or karma. Some deliberately exposed handicapped infants to death. The Bible alone presents a compassionate God who has come to this earth to save us from our sin and its consequences. That's our message. But there is a change in postmodernity. So in Europe, mission has had a big change over the last hundred years. There was a World Missionary Conference 1910 in Edinburgh that was with the claim of conquering the world. Evangelization meant Christianization meant culturalization. There is a Latin phrase, cuius regio eius religio, that means whose realm, his religion. And that's a kind of colonialism approach. And then the 20th century came full of ideologies, nationalism, fascism, communism, socialism, a couple of other isms. And now the situation has changed dramatically. Any kind of mission is suspect. For many people, there is in fact no difference between an evangelical Christian and a Muslimic Taliban. Radical, intolerant. So an example, there was a recently a couple of missionaries killed in Yemen because of their faith and missionary activities. And what was the reaction in Western media? How on earth can these fundamentalists provoke the Muslims with their intolerant missionary activities? That was the reaction. Very unclear and unspecific understanding about the core of mission nowadays. So now we have a situation like a restart. 
we have friends in Eastern Germany. And Eastern Germany was impacted by 40 years of socialism and uh, very few Christians. So we sat together with them and talked about their experience with faith and gospel and Jesus. And you know what they said? Everything what we know about the Bible, we know out of Hollywood movies. So that was their source. And by the way, that's the reason why initiatives like movies from Mel Gibson, The Passion of Christ, are so important. Because people in a non-churched, non-reached environment have just the movie source. And we can start with Adam and Eve from the very beginning. So we are not talking about Christianity as a culture, but based on the personal relationship to Jesus. We can emphasize this relationship between man and God. So probably Europe is some years ahead of uh, USA in terms of dealing with the post-Christendom situation. We no longer have Christmas markets. We have winter markets. We no longer have Christmas cards. We have season's greetings. We no longer have the Ten Commandments in an entrance hall of an also Christian-led company. And even Christian entrepreneurs who want to offer a prayer room have to make sure that this room is not dedicated to a biblical God, but neutral. So there is this dominion of neutrality. We're at the end of a Christendom era. And that, of course, has also potential for a next phase. Because we can focus on the core of our belief, the relationship to Jesus Christ. So praying for revival is not helpful if we are hoping for a return to Christendom. It's not about a powerful majority dominating the culture. A post-Christendom, and that's the case all over Europe, a post-Christendom society will be understandably wary and cautious of the Christian community and very reluctant to allow it to have too much influence beyond their own constituency. So what can we do? First of all, no defeatism. We of course can, can uh, lamenting about the churches which are empty. We don't have school prayer anymore. There is no worship, no hymns on the radio. And uh, we have um, increasingly not uh, Christian weddings, but some other kinds of um, living together. So there is a situation hard to accept. There is grief in it and sorrow. But um, also being involved in the business environment with the World Evangelical Alliance leading the business coalition, I am closely connected to a couple of people from the investment world and they have a claim that calls by the dip. So when a price is falling, and probably that's similar to what we 
actually experience with the churches who left in one year 400,000 members, both the Evangelical and the Catholic Church, leave, uh, 400,000 people leaving the church. It's going down. But the principle is buy the dip. Go into it. Invest in that. But in a creative and in a prophetic and in a hopeful way. And there is this claim of creative minorities coming out of the British historian Arnold Toynbee. He claimed that we have to be creative minorities. Not just relying on the, the heritage we have. Not on the churchy infrastructure. And that reminds me to, uh, to another uh, verse. We have the story of, um, of David and Saul. And uh, it's, uh, it's described in uh, 1 Samuel 17. Saul put a coat of armor on David and a bronze helmet on his head. I cannot go in these, David said to Saul. So he took them off. Then he took his staff in his hand, chose five smooth stones from the stream, put them in the pouch of his shepherd's bag, and with his sling in his hand, approached the Philistine. So Saul's armor was no doubt very impressive. And in an analogy, the church buildings are also impressive out of the times being the majority. But we have to overcome the deep desire to be impressive. We are meanwhile a minority. Because if we just want to be impressive with our religious style, with our huge building, with the wellness, wealth we have, we are, we are hardly winning the battle against the Philistine and we are suffering under a totally de-Christianized culture. So trapping this way us down. There is a district of damage. It could be, it could lead us into a wrong direction. So we have to, we have to be creative in a changed and changing context. And that's where baseball come into the game. That is an avenue that is not known as a church offer. So people are aware, oh, what's going on? Dealing with the kids in a different type and style. So probably to be provocative, we have... Sometimes too many church buildings, too many theological colleges, too many Christian organizations, too many denominations. For how long do we subsidize churches, ministries and organizations that are apparently making little impact in their environment, in their post-Christian cities? That are tough questions. So as a minority community, we cannot continue to fund everything we could when we were a majority. So we have to choose carefully which battles to fight and what projects to take up. It is unrealistic 
for the Christian community to expect to maintain a kind of national coverage with reduced personnel and resources. And that's hard to accept for denominations, also in Germany. So being a minority rather than a majority raises the question, what can we no longer do and what can we now do that we could not before? Because minorities, especially vast minorities, can exercise huge influence on society, particularly if that society is unable to draw on any other philosophy or meta-narrative. And that's the situation we have. We have an ideological vacuum, and we can use that as dedicated Christians. So Jeff Fountain, friend of mine, head of the Schumann Center, said, post-Christian Europeans today are squatters living in a house without paying the rent. They are benefiting from a value set which was set by Christians and now, like the uh, Indian philosopher Vishal Mangalwadi claimed, the West has amputated its soul. There's just the frame left, but we have amputated our soul. So, looking back what the early Christians experienced back in the uh, 3rd and 4th century, there was Julian the last Roman emperor, and he tried to revive paganism. He built temples and spruced them up, but Christianity was spreading faster than he could compete with. And in the midst of this, he wrote, a friend, wrote to a friend, a, a pagan priest, the following. He said, nothing has contributed to the progress of the superstition of these Christians as that charity to strangers. The impious Galileans provide not only for their own poor, but for ours as well. And that made the difference. And that brought many, many people out of a non-evangelistic background to the first Christians. So seek the welfare of the city, like Jeremiah said. The early Christians were promiscuous with their charity. Our lands are still riddled with poverty, homelessness, unemployment, alcohol addiction, substance abuse, domestic violence, suicide, crime, trafficking, pedophilia, starvation, war, refugees, persecution, feudalism, slavery, racism, tribalism, unsustainable debt, at family, state, and federal levels, unfunded liabilities of governments and rampant system corruption. These socio-economic issues are still prevalent in significant degrees in all societies, here and in Europe. So what can we bring to the world? The appearance of Jesus on earth was to bring great joy, peace, and goodwill to all mankind, according to Luke 2, verse 14. This was music to the ears of the Jews of the first century Palestine, who had been plundered into utter poverty and starvation by their corrupt temple priests, working in conjunction with the landed aristocracy and the occupying Romans. So to the contemporary Jewish mind, 
peace did not just mean the absence of war. It meant to be safe in mind, body, and estate. It speaks of completeness, fullness, a type of wholeness. That's shalom. Jesus set about disrupting the toxic system which produced the wealth and assets for these corrupt leaders. He began by converting the tax collectors who were the conduit through which the wealth was channeled from the struggling masses to the temple. At the temple, the priest took a handsome cut and passed the balance on up to Rome. Very early on, Jesus converted Levi, a chief tax collector and customs agent, who became the Apostle Matthew. With Levi came probably a huge amount of other tax collectors. Probably. This had a huge impact then on the revenue to the temple. The conversion of Zacchaeus in Luke 19 was another major blow to the priest. So then Jesus began to heal people for free. He sent them to the temple to show the priests. He was cutting off that revenue stream. He forgave sins for free and further disrupted revenues to the temple. He fed thousands for free, 4,000, 5,000 people. The priests did not want the masses to be well-fed and healthy. They wanted the people to weak and incapable of rebellion. That was their approach. So Jesus was the one who set other paradigms, destroying a toxic system, setting the people free. And that is still our call to do, seek the welfare of the city. So at our church, during the COVID-19 time, we had a close look on our neighborhood. And we are in close connections to them. And there were disastrous situations in many homes and households. So um, the people were forced to, to do home offices. Probably it was similar here. The situation was there were small flats, 60 uh, square meter, uh, living with uh, three, four, five kids uh, on a very small space. Then the, the husbands were there working in the living room and uh, one of the wives reached out to my wife and said it's a disastrous situation so my, my husband has to work there the kids are around they can't go to school etc so what can we do so as a church we decided to use the God-given church building and change it into a co-work center so we renovated a whole level and floor into a co-work center where people can come and do their work during uh, the week, Monday till Friday or sometimes Saturday. So they have space in, and room in the church building. And interestingly, we are running uh, since a couple of years um, a kindergarten. And interestingly, now a couple of parents of kids in the kindergarten they use the time while the kids are in the kindergarten to work in the same building. And that creates synergies among each other and among us as church with the neighborhood. 
And that's a great avenue to, to serve people in the midst of their needs and the current needs. So what we have to do is to search for common ground. Where do we have the same and similar situation, same interest? Some years ago, I um, was um, invited to a conference which was called Karma Konsum. That was not, by far not, a Christian conference, but it was subtitled with uh, the claim, Empowering a New Spirit in Business. And I thought, wow, that's exactly what we want, empowering a new spirit in business. I mean, to be more accurate, we meant the Holy Spirit who should come in the business. So the conference was filled with people from each background, humanitarians, green people, esoteric people. Lot, hundreds showed up and I recognized no other Christian participant. Just my friend and I, we joined that conference and the, the whole day long we had so many great and fruitful conversations with people who are searching for meaning in their life. They were joining this conference because of this longing how to empower, empower a new spirit in my daily life. And we could give the answer. We are filled by a new spirit, by the Holy Spirit. And you can experience the same. It's just to get in relationship with Jesus Christ. Do you want me to tell you something about that? Yes, and we talked and we shared the gospel. So I was disappointed to see that less and few um, Christian organizations using, using these opportunities. Another experience was with a business friend um, in Berlin. He is so-called a sinologist. So whenever it comes to a delegation trip to Asia, he is preparing leaders out of politics or business to get prepared well to make the trip to Asia, how to deal with Asians um, and so on. So he's doing a great job on that. He is... Um, non-religious, but in favor for Confucius. So we had a great conversation uh, over dinner at some time and, uh, and talked about values. And he uh, shared uh, uh, something about Confucius and uh, we talked about biblical values. And uh, at some point he said, Mr. Pluczynski, uh, let us run a common event. I will invite all my uh, leaders out of my network and then I will uh, speak 30 minutes about what leaders can learn from Confucius and then I will give the floor to you and uh, you can speak half, a, half an hour about what leaders can learn from Jesus. How's about that? And I agreed and said, okay, let's do that. That was by far not a churchy event, but it was f the, the room was packed. It was filled with leaders who are in some way interested in, le in valuable leadership. Um, and, uh, of course, open to hear from Confucius and Jesus. So, uh, my friend Dr. Roll stood up and uh, spoke about what leaders can learn from Confucius very well. 
And uh, I mean, if you know a bit about Confucius, there, there are high, high values. And so when I stood up, I started exactly with that and said, so if everybody here in that room would behave in line with these values, the world would be a better place, for sure. So thanks, Dr. Röll, for your, um, for your speech about Confucius. Um, when I speak about Jesus and how, what leaders can learn from Jesus, um, I have to make one comment in the very beginning. In terms of values, we agree in many things. But there is one difference. And that is, Confucius is dead and Jesus is alive. So when I speak to you about Jesus, I speak about a life relationship and how Jesus is influencing my life as somebody who is not just known for great values, but it is a, it is a dynamic relationship influencing my life on a daily basis. And it was interesting to see how many people showed up afterwards and came to me and said, I, I have joined some services and have been to churches, but I never have heard somebody spoken in that way about a personal relationship to Jesus. That was new to me. My friends, that's new for many, many, many people in Germany in a totally secularized culture and environment. That's post-Christendom. So there is a tipping point in history we, we have now. We, of course, have the, the great heritage. We do have, um, we do have the, the resources from the Western world, the baby boomer generation. And we have an increasing number of, of searching people longing for meaning in their life. And we have to bring this strength together with hope, courage, and impact. Let me close with um, an example out of the last few weeks. As you know, we have, uh, uh, we have the Ukrainian and, and Russian war right next door. It, uh, currently, it's changing uh, Germany in, uh, in many ways, uh, especially um, in, in terms of uh, the meaning of, of defense, of military, uh, investing money into that. Um, so for decades, military was not a big thing in, in Germany, uh, more the opposite. And, uh, and now with the situation... Right next door, so there is just Poland as a buffer uh, in between to Ukraine. And uh, meanwhile, almost 4 million uh, Ukrainians have left uh, their country. And um, there are 2.5 million in Poland. And I got a call uh, some day, uh, two weeks ago. Um, Timo, there, is a, there are two families arriving Berlin at uh, 5 p.m. in the afternoon, uh, two moms with uh, uh, each two kids. So there were four boys between 11 and uh, 18 years old. So uh, where, can, where can we accommodate them? I thought, oh, wow, wow, okay. So it was around noontime, so 
less uh, time uh, to, to organize that. And I shared that with my wife over lunch and said, uh, Goddess, um, I got a call to accommodate uh, two families. Um, where can we, uh, what can we organize uh, to, to have them somewhere accommodated? And uh, so she spoke afterwards with uh, our daughters. So I said, eight and, nine, eight and 11 years old. And it was interesting to see how they react. So they, of course, have heard about the war at school and out of media. And now there was a certain um, need coming close to us as family. And they said immediately, oh, why don't we accommodate them? I mean, we have some other rooms, and uh, so we will prepare everything. So, uh, Mom, you, you uh, let us do that. Uh, you have not to, to care about that. Um, we, we prepare the house. And so my wife said, uh, okay, um, we'll do that. And uh, I gave uh, the call back uh, to, to my friend who asked for accommodation and said, okay, let's, uh, let's do that. Um, we, we accommodate them. So it was not 5 p.m. Uh, because the train was broken in Poland. Uh, so it was after midnight. I think it was 2.30 at the night when they arrived. But it was interesting to see the day before how our daughters um, were, were preparing the situation. The arrival of two foreign not known families, we had no relation to them, of course not, and had just the, descri uh, the, the, uh, the description of, of two moms and four boys. And they went to a grocery sh uh, shop, bought shampoo and, and shower gel and everything what, is what was needed and had baskets and put that there and made the bed. And I thought, wow, it's interesting to see um, what they are doing um, they did more than ever without my order. So I, of course, also uh, ask for, hey, clean up your room, please. Uh, so as any parents here in the room are doing, with, uh, let's say, less success. Uh, and this day was different. We, we shared the need... And that made them active. And that was an example also for our spiritual life. To see the need. And Jesus, and Jesus is a great example how he treated others well. And God has put us into the current situation. In this world, the 21st century, however it is, how, how dark it is, how difficult it is. We are here to serve people well and make connection to Jesus Christ in a vital relationship. So let's stand up and pray. Heavenly Father, you put us into this world and we struggle with so many things around us. And probably we, we are hopeless, but you are you are the hope. And so I ask for, for courage and for wisdom to act in the right way, 
to connect people around us with you and give hope and be light in dark situations. So thanks for the opportunity we have also as, as your people around the globe to make a difference to others and to bring peace and shalom into this world. So thanks for everything you gave us. And in the same way, I ask that we can give this love to others. In Jesus' name, amen.